Greetings and salutations. Welcome to this episode of Risk and Reels, where we talk with our colleagues about movies. And if we have time, maybe we'll talk about some cybersecurity stuff. Uh, I am super, super excited to, uh, to have my, my friend and longtime colleague, Brian Reed, joining us today. Uh, Brian is the Senior Director of Cybersecurity Strategy for Proofpoint. He's been there for the last couple of years. And before that, he and I spent a lot of time working at uh, our former employer, Gartner, where we uh, had a lot of fun and traveled the world and did all kinds of cool stuff. So, hey, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Jeffrey, always a pleasure and uh, definitely traveled the world. I, I think we even talked about movies some, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and watches, but we're not going to talk about watches today. We'll, yeah, uh, we'll I, you know, I'm actually, time. believe it or not, not wearing a watch at the moment, which is, I know, sacrilegious for us, but we're both I'm wearing my no-date sub today. I've been uh, sporting that the last couple of days. Yeah. So, uh, all right, awesome. So, Let's jump in. So I'm going to I'm going to hit you with a, a movie question and we'll see where it goes. So, um, you know, we know that uh, Hollywood sometimes suffers from, let us say, a lack of originality and uh, they do a lot of remakes and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Tell me, what is your favorite? What do you think is the best remake that's been made? This is a tough one, right? Because there's been so many remakes and and I mean. I could take this in so many different directions and genres. I, I think the one for me, just because I was a fan of the original movie back in uh, the early 60s, was the original Ocean's Eleven with, with the Rat Pack, Sinatra, Sandy Davis Jr., uh, it, just the whole gang being there. And then you look at what they did in 2001 with Ocean's Eleven, the remake with Clooney and Brad Pitt, Bernie Mac, the, the, you know, Matt Damon, the whole... They put it together, and it, and it was just a. It, it's, those ensemble movies are sometimes bombs and sometimes easy to pull off. Notice I didn't say Ocean's Twelve or Thirteen, uh, the sequels, but the first one had they left it there, uh, would have been enough for me. I mean, I know I know it ends with a bit of a cliffhanger, and if you haven't seen the the trilogy remake series of Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, and Thirteen, uh, and then there was the spinoff, of course, of of uh, Ocean's Eight, but. Um, it's really it's a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of uh, they pull off the heist and you know it's it's going to end up badly in the sequel but uh, it, to me that was that was the one that was sort of well done and I, I've got a thing for those early '60s movies I think you know all time favorite movie I'm a huge Steve McQueen guy um, I know we talked about watches and things like that obviously you know McQueen a big big racing and watch guy of course uh, but um, yeah again for me I could have said Great Escape favorite movie. But uh, favorite sequel, I think I think the team that did Ocean's Eleven, uh, the remake in 01, pulled it off beautifully. I, you know what? I actually love that movie. I'm, I'm a big fan of those silly heist movies. They're just totally absurd, but I think it's so interesting. And I got to tell you, um, those folks definitely had fun making that movie. Uh, the, the other one that I think people had fun making was, uh, was Caddyshack right back in, yeah. uh, in the day, another movie that should not have had a sequel. Um, so I think, I think that's a, a great choice. I thought the casting was great. I'm a huge Bernie Mac fan. I think the world lost a, a comedic genius when, um, when he passed. And, um, I, I think maybe my favorite line was, um, I don't do dogs. Well, why not? I had a bad experience. 
And I just thought that that was just super, super clever. And um, I also thought they did a pretty decent job with the technology. I think sometimes people, and, and maybe that'll be a question for someone on a, on a future podcast, what, uh, what movie did the most horrible technical reference? And I think the list is super long, but I thought they did a pretty decent job kind of talking about the technology, the, you know, the EMPs and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think that yeah, was, you, uh, you bring up a great point on the tech. So I, I'm a huge, um, little known fact about me. One of the things uh, I used to work on earlier in my career I actually used to work at a video store, and some of the people listening to this and watching this are probably like, what the hell is a video store? Uh, so we, we used to, when I was in high school and college, we actually had triangular trade figured out to a science. I had some friends uh, that worked at a pizza store. Uh, I worked at a video store. Uh, we had another friend at a convenience store. So between pizzas and drinks and movies, uh, we we had our weekends figured out. But um, you, you're right on the heist movies and you know, sort of some of them can be campy and unbelievable. Some of them can be really good. You know, Italian job comes to mind back in the back in the late 90s. Uh, but you mentioned technology and, and dating pretty well. The one that always gets to me, and this is a bit of a remake, too, but it's a remake off a TV series. The first Mission Impossible. If you remember what he talks about breaking into CIA headquarters and, you know, the, the 686 prototype processor in a laptop. Uh, it's hilarious. My wife jokes with me when I first got out of college, my first laptop I bought was 120 megahertz Toshiba satellite laptop. And it was, you know, a, a Pentium chip and, you know, state of the art. This was 1997, uh, early 98, I think. But uh, it, it's, you know, again, technology that you go back and watch the movie, it doesn't date very well in, in some ways. Uh, but yeah, the Ocean's Eleven stuff, I, I thought, you know, I, I watched it recently, I don't know, a year or so ago. And it really... It, it holds up pretty well. And, and you got to think that movie's 20, 21 years old now. Yeah. Yeah. Don't remind me. It makes me feel very old when I start to look at that. You know, my, uh, my youngest daughter's just turned 17 and uh, she loves classic music that we love. And um, when we, when she goes, Oh, when did this song come out? And I look it up and I go, Oh, like yeah, you get depressed. Years ago. I know. That's terrible. So, all right. Awesome. So I think, I think the discussion of technology, I think is a, a great transition point. Maybe we'll actually spend some time talking about the cyber. Yeah. So um, you and I know, right. Having spent a lot of time advising CISOs and CROs and engineers and architects and, and all that stuff in the security space. Um, there's always a balance that people really struggle with, right. Between people, process, and tools. Tools tend to be the easiest thing to, lean toward. But as we know, buying tools doesn't really solve the problem. So, you know, having worked at Gartner and worked for, you know, a, a number of different vendors, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how how that's changed and where you, you know, obviously Proofpoint is a technology company, right? You sell lots yep. of tools and great tools. How do you advise people when you are talking about strategy? How do you strike that right balance, especially with a potential recession coming up? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of things in there, Jeffrey, right? Um, and, and I think starting the discussion with tools is a crutch that a lot, of, a lot of vendors fall into, a lot of CISOs and security leaders fall into. Hey, it's a lot easier sometimes in a budget to make a CapEx spend than it is to make an ongoing operational expense spend. So you know, we, we had those, you and I have had thousands of those conversations in the last decade uh, with CISOs about... You know, where, where do you pull budget from? How do you make things happen? How do you improve your program? But if you look at the classic people process technology, 
you know, let's start with the people first. And, and this is really what drew me to join Proofpoint. Uh, one of the things we talked about at Gartner for a long time is this, this notion and concept. And you wrote about it a lot. I reviewed a lot of your research on it and presented on this a lot. But this notion of people-centric security. And, and this is really what drew me to join Proofpoint two years ago, is the idea that it's about people. It starts with people. It's, it's about protecting people and giving people the, the empowerment and the understanding uh, with the hope that they'll make good decisions and that they can be guided through understanding processes and have some really good supporting technology back them up. But it really starts with people. Uh, you can't just make a make a capex spend and throw tech at the problem and you know dust your hands off and hang the mission accomplished banner on the aircraft carrier uh, and say the war is over. It's really about starting with people. And th there's some things that that come up in that people discussion that kind of bug me. And I'm I'm going to pick on security awareness a little bit as as a topic area, but language like people are the weakest link and the human firewall, and those sorts of things that to me that really dehumanizes the problem. It dehumanizes people. And you know, a lot of that marketing speak isn't super helpful. Uh, as security leaders, as CISOs, it's, it's really important to understand your constituency. Who are you serving and who are you supporting? Uh, and, and it all starts with that understanding of people first before you start trying to shoehorn these different uh, technology controls or these solutions in place. Awesome. So I, I agree. And, and I think... Um you hit on some great points there, right? Which is we, we need to stop blaming the users, right? The users are uh, just victim blaming is not helpful. done. Yeah. And, and I think we continue to see it and it's super, super frustrating there. I remember a number of years ago, there was a company, I don't even remember the company name, but they were, they were trying to get rid of passwords and their marketing was not worded correctly. And, um, what they wanted to say was we have to kill off passwords, but really the way it was worded was we have to kill off the people. And everybody at Gartner went, hmm, not actually a terrible idea, but that's not really the right way to, to, to think about it. And I just want to kind of pull on that thread a little bit, because when we talk about people, I think there's really several groups of people that we need to think about. So we have the average user, right? So the, you know, the people that are getting the work done, the rank and file, the practitioners, then we have the technology and security people, and then we have the executives. And I think they all really have sort of different approaches and different personalities. And I think as security and risk leaders, how do you, how do you see interfacing and interacting with those people different or, or the same, right? There's yeah. obviously overlap there. So how do you see that? Yeah, I, I, would, I would even subdivide it a bit further. And this gets into some of the things that you know, I, I, one of the things I focused on a lot last couple of years uh, in my previous life as an industry analyst, and certainly the, the two plus years I've been here at Proofpoint has been this notion of insider risk and insider threat. And we have this conversation a lot when we talk with, with our customers and our, our prospects and our partners about thinking about how your users work and how do they operate. Think about one of the big things going on uh, in the world today with economic uncertainty and there's you know, news of layoffs and contracts not being extended with third parties and things like that. It, take a hard look. One of the conversations I or one of the things I usually have as a discussion point very early on with CISOs is how does your organization onboard and offboard employees and, and other business relationships? Do you have a good feel for how that works? And if you don't, it's a, it's a great opportunity for you to go ask people on the business side, on the operational side, 
hey, wait, what's wait, involved in that onboarding and operating? The business people, what they do and what they care about? Yeah, you know, have Shocking. a little bit of empathy. I mean, right, you know, have a little bit of empathy and understanding for how people outside of IT and InfoSec live. I know this is this is heresy, right? <laughs> but But having that understanding of how your business works helps you set up and go, hey, I understand that the process works like A, B, C, and D, but we really need E, F, G, H, and I to make it better. And we need some things before A to make it better too. And then that also sets you up to be able to go, hey, I, I understand there's some great technical controls that we could put in around process item B and process item D. Here's where here's where the, the value for that tech comes in. So it's all about, you know, in, in my mind, that people process tech, it all starts with the people, but it starts with the communication with people to understand what the processes are so that you can make strong technical recommendations and you can build value around these things. CISOs, we, you know, CISOs and security leaders, we all love our shiny tools. We all love to get new stuff in. And it makes sense, right? We want our teams to be able to be working on modern technology. We want them to be able to be innovative. We want them to be able to, to save time and save the company money too. And a lot of these tools can do that. But I think there's a big crutch where when people start with technology, it, it leads you down a tough road because, you know, first of all, you can't justify the, the tech spend if you don't do that, that tough work up front. Right. Great. I think those are, those are some great points. And, and I, I just I also want to talk a little bit about the process. Right. I, I always sort of define process as scalable, repeatable patterns of behavior, right? Yeah. Given the same set of inputs from tool or people, are we ending up with the same set of outputs? And I think because process is the hard thing, and frankly, it ain't all that sexy, right? Nobody wants to no. be a process person. How, how do you see that playing in, in sort of protecting our organizations? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go back on something you said there about process not being sexy. And I think that there's a missed opportunity a lot of times for this. Uh, not so much about being sexy, but I think that Process needs to be ingrained in the culture. I mean, there's a lot of processes in a lot of companies. Think about where you're at at Black Kite, where I'm at at Proofpoint, where we both used to work at Gartner, companies we worked at in our past lives or companies we, we support and partner with. Sometimes there's process for process. The right kind of process, I would argue, is all those things scalable, repeatable that you mentioned. But I would also say that good process is ingrained in your culture. It's ingrained in your organizational culture. People don't want to do process for the sake of process. People want process with a, you've heard me say this talk track before, process with a purpose. If I don't understand why I'm doing something, why am I doing it? And, and th those are, you know, sometimes seem like pedantic questions to ask. But if you're a, if you're a new CISO or a new security leader that just came to a new organization, one of, two of the best questions you can ask. The first one is, what are some of the major security incidents we've had in the past that might not have been in the news? And what do we learn from them? Don't, don't talk about those. And the other one is, you know, what are processes that you think work really well and don't work really well? Right. So I think that's, that's all really important. And, and I agree with you about the communication. I mean, you know, that was a big chunk of what I've done for the last couple of years. And, and um, you know, I was out in uh, at CSA September and I did my, you know, tips for communicating IT risk to non-IT stakeholders and, yep. you know, I'm doing some updates on that. But I always used to ask audiences all the time, how many of you have a password policy? And everybody puts their hand up. And then I would say, how many of you explain why you have a password policies and all the hands go down? Well, we know because this is what we do, right? I always refer yep. to myself as a professional paranoid. 
But the audience just sees it as an arbitrary rule. So unless we articulate why yeah. we're doing those things, and I think that's a, a really, really important, really, really important point. Um, I just want to kind of talk a little bit. So I know no one wants to say the R word. Clearly, there is some economic challenges. It's very interesting. Yeah. Right? I don't remember an economic situation like this ever before. Um, you know, the stock market's not doing great, but unemployment's really low. Companies are making tons of money. The real estate market has not collapsed in spite of rising interest rates. It's just super weird. And, and we have not really heard a lot about pending budget cuts. And I'm a little scared about that because yeah. what I fear is we're going to start hearing from CISOs and CROs on a Thursday afternoon going, hey, so they just told me I got to cut 10% of my budget by Monday, right? <laughs> so where do you see sort of shifting to the process and, and the people and yeah. looking at automation and, and those kinds of things? Yeah. And I think, again, this is an opportunity if you do that legwork up front and understand the people involved, understand the process involved, it makes making those technology spends easier. So there's different kinds of budget, as we all know. And I, I rattled through this a few minutes ago, but capital expenditures and operational expenditures. So those, those capital expenditures are those one-time upfront purchases or maybe scheduled purchases over time. But the operational ones are really, hey, I'm going to hire people. I'm going to bring in headcount. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do something to improve my ongoing operations. It, it's really... I think we're going to see some of what you you alluded to there. I think you're going to see people look at different kinds of budgets, things like discretionary spend, uh, bringing in maybe contractors and third parties uh, and have to tone some of that down or just better justify that. Um, the one thing you didn't mention, and, all the, the, and I've been calling it economic uncertainty. I haven't been using the R word, but it, it, and you're right. It, it's really unique. Uh, in our adult lives, and you and I are pretty old and, and got some, some gray and white hair to prove it. Speak for yourself. Uh, That's why I shave every day because my beard is Well, I, yeah, I was going to say, your, yours would be whiter <laughs> than mine. But uh, the, the interesting thing is we haven't seen this sort of setup before. You and I have both lived through you know, the, the first you know, dot-com 1.0 in 2000, you know, the, the 07, 08 crash and, and onward. You know, we lived through those things in our career. But the one thing that we didn't have was this record inflation, this devaluation of what people you know are, are able to put in their pocketbooks from one year to the next, uh, as far as, as having money left over. It's, it, it's an interesting, well, and I say interesting in an academic sense, but it, it's a crazy scenario that we have at the moment because the, the, the unemployment is so low. There is such a need for skilled work, especially uh, in in the IT space, and furthermore, in, in the in the IT security space, that it's creating an opportunity. Uh, you look at technologies out there, and and we could pick on the the SIM and XDR, you know, whatever acronym our our friends and former colleagues want to call it this decade. But there's an opportunity for things like orchestration, automation, faster response. Um, you know, one of the things I worked on the last couple of years when we were on the same team was incident response and incident management. And I used to always counsel uh, people who ran IR internally at a company, people who ran disaster uh, recovery and, and crisis communications, that you know everybody gets caught up in that middle part. If we think about NIST 861, all those things around detection, analysis, triage, and containment and eradication and recovery, what we don't spend enough time on in, in NIST 861 
is that gigantic arrow pointing from post-incident activities back to your preparation. So thinking about what- So let me, let me just stop you. So for, those, yeah. for those of you that may not know, what is NIST 861? Yeah, so NIST 861 has been around for a long, long time. I think it was actually last updated in 2011. So NIST 861 is the NIST standard that defines incident management. And it basically builds an incident management framework uh, out there for you. The diagram I'm mentioning is on, uh, I believe, page 19 or page 20 of, of uh, NIST 861. Okay, that's frightening uh, that you know page numbers. Just yeah, that. yeah. It's I, You can tell I've been doing this for a little while, uh, unfortunately, and, and used to have this conversation a lot. But it's really, at the, at the end of the day, the moral of the story is that there's a lot of things that we should be doing before and after uh, an incident. And you, we can take the justification for needing to do those things and use it to, again, better understand people, better understand process to justify where we need to make you know, the right kinds of tech spending. I'll yeah, you know, it's interesting you talk about that. I, uh, I was talking with a reporter yesterday about a possible story. And the, the topic really was, you know, the uptick in incidents around the holidays when a lot of people yeah. are on vacation. And I talked a lot about the response mechanism and the detection mechanism to help overcome. And, and I, I mean, I was frank with him. I said, look, yeah, the holidays, sure. But, you know, if I'm an attacker, I'm going to make a phone call at three o'clock on a Friday because I know people just want to go home. Yeah. Right. And I think what happens to your point is, I think we tend to focus on the pieces of the cycle rather than the entirety uh, of, of the cycle. And um, Bob Maley, our CSO, talks a lot about sort of, um, and I'm going to butcher the terminology, but he really talks about sort of physiology versus the specifics, right? He said, you know, we have organs and all that stuff that they do what they do, but if they don't work together, we don't have a thing. And I think that's, uh, I think, a great a great metaphor there. Yeah, it, um, it lends into that ecosystem, right? Of of that yeah. that you know, I'm a I'm a big believer in in ecosystems and platforms. By the way, on, on the threat landscape, we see the same thing over here at Proofpoint. We've got a number of reports, whether it's our State of the Fish, our Voice of the CISO report. Uh, you know, again, the the timeliness and recency around these things. You know, obviously around the holidays, you see the holiday gift card uh, scams and things like that. But you also see, it, it's interesting, one of the attacks that we've seen a huge uptick in, uh, and Sherrod DeGrippo, who's our VP of Threat Intelligence here, talks about it a lot, is you'll love this acronym. Um, it's not just analysts that can come up with funny acronyms. We've got one too. Uh, it's called a TOAD attack. And that stands for Telephone Oriented Attack Delivery. This is the kinds of things where somebody sends you a message about, hey, you've got Justin Bieber concert tickets, uh, but we're going to go ahead and charge you uh, for the parking as well. Call this number at the bottom. And it's literally people manning the phones and you know there to uh, you know take credit card information from you, fraudulent info. I, there, you know, these are things with you know, no link, no attachments. So it's not a malware delivery kind of thing. It's really a social engineering attack to you know, get to your point, the Friday 3 p.m. Uh, call because I want to bug people. Hey, if, if you don't call us by tomorrow, we're going to charge your credit card. That's going to elicit a phone call from from at least. A or, or if you don't get back to us, the police are going to show up at your house. That's that's my favorite yeah. one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I think you're right. I think the fraud, it's a huge issue. And it comes back to your your talking about the people and, and the process. Right. Yeah. 
yeah, there are fraud tools out there, but at the end of the day, it's about making people aware. And, you know, and it's great because, you know, I, I kind of pick on my mom, you know, my mom's not super technical, but my mom knows when she gets a text, she calls and says like, what do I do with this? And, and the one that we've been seeing a ton of is Amazon or another e-commerce vendor are going, Hey, we're just, we just want to verify this. And, you know, now because everybody's texts are link enabled and you, it launches a browser and, um, you know, it's scary out there and, you know, for the attackers, it's, it's a numbers game, but, you know, I think to your point the the people in the process is super critical, right? If you get this, what do you do? And one of the stories I share, um, our CEO was in Turkey about six weeks ago and I was sitting on an airplane getting ready to fly up to headquarters in Boston and I get a text. Hey, it's Paul. And the number looked weird. And I'm like, oh, he's in Turkey. So maybe, you know, who knows? And, you know, I had a little bit of a conversation and then he said, so I'm going to need you to pick up some gift cards. So at that point I was like, okay, so clearly fraud, but the timing just happened to hit, right? Because it could have been him coming in from a weird number because he was out of the country. And I think that's how a lot of these attackers are, are successful. And, you know, I used to tell people when I did pen testing, I always used to do social engineering. I said, people want to be nice. They want to be helpful mm-hmm. and they don't want to be responsible for you, Brian Reed, getting in trouble or getting yeah. fired. So that, that's super, super, um, super critical. Yeah, it's funny so, the example you just went through on on the CEO texting. A, a lot of times, a lot of the security awareness platforms, us included, you know, do those kinds of things. We'll do those kinds of things to, uh, you know, try to entice people. It's hilarious. We we ran an internal test of this uh, of ourselves at Proofpoint. This was back in I think February or March because I was out at a uh, I was out at a vendor or, or out at a um, a reseller conference on the West Coast, and I get a text from a Sean Willie who had just taken over as our CEO. And uh, it's like, hey, you know, Brian, it's a Sean. How you doing? And I'm like, funny, it didn't come from a Sean's number. But uh, and and I responded back. I'm like, hey, a Sean, how you doing? Would you like me to buy some gift cards for you? You know what? The second the second time I got the text from Paul, that was my exact response. I like to mess with those folks if I you yeah know, time time permitting. So so here's the thing, right? You and I we're paranoid for a living. Yeah. Right. But how do we get people who don't think that way to think that way? How do we sort of change the way sort of perceive people perceive these things? Yeah. I I know you've heard me talk about this and I'm a huge believer in bringing in, you know, again, I'm going to pick on trying to build that security culture and that, that stale security awareness, you know, mentality of, of throwing CBT modules, you know, computer-based training modules over the fence at your employees and expecting them to click next, next finish and get something out of it. You've got to take the train, you know, take that that building the security culture and make it a a organization wide thing. Pull in people like internal marketing and your corporate comms folks. Really message like you mean it. I mean, it, you can't just have you know, hey, I'm going to take you know, and, and and I'm going to throw us under the the bus a little bit as a vendor in the space. You can't just take the the off the shelf sort of training, throw it over the wall, and expect that to work without. You know, much much of that proverbial wood behind the arrow. You've got to get buy-in from a lot of people, and you've got to you've got to sell this internally. Sell this is important. Tell people why. This goes back to my my point about process for the sake of process. Are you doing security awareness training because you have a compliance reason to do it? Do you have an auditor who's making you do it? Is this something that you think you should do, or is there a really good reason why you're doing it? And and justify even the things that you think are obvious for, oh, everybody should understand why we're doing this. 
No, explain it. You know, ex- explain right. it to me like I'm an eight year old. So do you no, I'm not going to go there. Um, yeah, I, no, I, I mean, I think those are all all great points, and 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 I do think that when we're communicating, we need to do a better job of pointing back to business objectives, right? Yeah. There was um, somebody in the federal government uh, not too long ago said, you know, cyber risk needs to be a business risk, and I said, okay, I agree 100. percent And then the very next thing that the person said was. When the when ransomware takes down the network, it's too late to talk to the board about it. And I went, but that's the board doesn't know what the network is. The board wants yeah. to hear, okay, we can't send bills out, we can't collect money, we can't ship product, right? And I think that is a big mistake. And and you know maybe that's a topic for uh, for for a future chat. But no, but you're right though. I mean, it all comes back to security people having a hard time putting things in the language of the business of, of how the organization works. And, and it's, yeah. it's that breakdown. You and you and I've talked about this for, for years and, and decades at this point of you've got to have a security strategy that works outside of it and information security and, and risk, I'll, I'll throw risk under the bus as well. It's got to work beyond those groups. It's got to, you've got to be able to explain to your point Hey, invoices can't go out. We can't bring money in. Accounts receivable isn't going to happen if this if if X Y Z goes down the way we think it could potentially go down. And by the way, there's a 32 percent chance that this is going to happen in the next six months. It's those kinds of value statements of being able to quantify. Hey, there's there's a you know one in three chance that this isn't going to work out well for us. So we might want to do some things like invest in scenario planning and tabletop exercises and you know really you know make that investment again on the preparation side of incident management before something yeah I, I you know I think the scenario planning is a great exercise and you know we did a ton of it at uh, at our former role and I actually ran um, a scenario planning exercise for our executive leadership team a couple weeks ago and you know you've done them and if people haven't done it before the first hour they're like I don't really like what is going on and then by the time like I remember our former boss Chris Burns always used to yeah. say he said I love sitting back and watching all of the cats sort of running around and then all of a sudden everybody lines up and goes. And, and I think that's uh, super, super important. And one of the things I always like to do in scenario planning is I always give people a different job, right? So you're the CEO, you're going to actually take the role of the CIO. You're yeah. the CSO, you're going to take the job of the CFO. And always at the end, people go, oh, I never thought about it that way, right? We have to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And and I think yeah. that's really, really important. And, um, you know, it's hard, right? It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And, yeah. and people don't like to be uncomfortable. Of course, when when you get hit with ransomware and you're down for two weeks, everybody's uncomfortable. But, but you know those scenario plans, the great thing about them, and, and you hit on this perfectly, is it's it's really an empathy-building exercise. One of my favorite things to do, and, and you, you know this, one of my favorite pieces of research, well, my second favorite piece of research, I think, over the last five or six years, was that note that we had around security organization dynamics. And I talk about it all the time, that the CISO reports to the CIO a good bit, but not always. And you get into those scenario plans. And if you're in an organization where you've got a CISO who reports to a CIO and then a CFO, best thing in the world to do when you're swapping uh, job responsibilities, make the CISO the CFO and make the CFO the CISO and see how that works out. It it really creates a lot of, of discussion. It gets the debate going in the room. It's I used to joke about scenario planning and tabletop exercises are like, 
herding cats and throwing some catnip in the middle of the room and seeing what happens. And you just sort of lob these grenade questions and statements in and you get the conversation started. You get people building that empathy. Uh, and, and it's so important to, to that, that whole org dynamic, regardless of how your org chart works. It, it's really a great way to, to get that exercise started and get the, those, those empathy muscles working. Yeah. No, I think uh, a, a great point. So uh, I want to thank you so much, Brian, for, for joining us today. Um, you know, you and I have known each other for, for a long time and um, you've always been near and dear to my heart. And I'm glad we were able to, to have this conversation. Um, any closing thoughts or wisdom for our listeners and viewers? Yeah, I, I, I think the one point I wanted to get into, we didn't talk a ton about tech, which I think is okay. But um, and, and this is maybe maybe a bit of a setup for part two or something. But uh, one of the things I've really struggled with and in light of the current economic uncertainty, note, I didn't say the R word. One of the things that a lot of people are struggling with is this whole notion. And you see our our former employer talking about this. You see a lot of large vendors talking about it is the two words that I probably despise the most vendor consolidation. I don't view the problem as vendor consolidation. Uh, I think a great way to think about it is vendor optimization. You should be holding vendors like like you guys at Black Kite, us at Proofpoint, the platform vendors you have. You should be holding all of them to a higher standard of play nice with each other, work well with each other, fit fit into working well with my people, and understand and fit into my process. So uh, this is a battle. I, you and I have talked about this offline a lot about. I just despise the consolidation word, even though that that might be an economic reality. I just view it as a vendor optimization opportunity instead of a vendor consolidation problem. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a, a great closing point. And, and um, you know, I have a tendency not to want to talk about technology because of what I've done for, for so long. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So um, again, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, for those of you out there that have not seen Ocean's Eleven, you should definitely go check it out. I am absolutely on board with uh, with Brian's recommendation. I also suggest, uh, unless you got a lot of free time, not bothering with uh, the follow ups. And I think watching the original one with the original uh, Rat Pack, I think uh, I think is is super interesting. So, all right, Brian, uh, a pleasure as always. Uh, we'll have to catch up and talk watches uh, and movies at another time. So with that, I want to thank everyone for uh, tuning in. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure, and have a great day. This was Risk and Reels. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.